Father, be kind to us now and by your spirit, take the word and wedge it into our busy lives. We, we often run ahead of you or apart from you and these gatherings are our chance for you to recapture our attention and our hearts so that we might truly be what we say we are, Christ followers this week. So in the matters that we're about to explore, God, um, we give to you our full attention, our full devotion, our full obedience, because we trust you and you, you deserve it so. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. The question that is before us as a congregation in these weeks, and really it's been before us all year in one form or another, is a simple one, but it's a, it's a challenging one, and it is this. How do we love God back? How do we love God back? And I raised this question explicitly last week when we looked at 1 John chapter 3, where it says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that, that is what we are. He lavished love on us. And we talked about that word lavish. That lavish is the way you, that's the way you put chocolate on a Sunday. You lavish it on, right? But when we think about God, it's not just any chocolate. So it, it's chocolate that comes out of a 27 foot tall, the world's biggest chocolate fountain with two tons of chocolate. That's God-sized lavish. We talked about how gifts can be lavish. Like if you turn 16, we talked about how a, a Bugatti Veyron would be lavish. Not smart, but lavish if someone gave you a $2.3 million sports car for a gift when you turn 16. We kept escalating, we talked about, but when we talk about God loving lavishly, lavishing love on us, that is about Christ. That is about sending his one and only son who stretched out on a cross for your sins and mine. That is the lavish love of God. When faced with that kind of love, how do you love God back? On the one hand, we'd say, how could you not? But how should we? What does that look like, the love that wells up in our hearts when we think about the love of God for us? The cross is irrefutably the great demonstration of the love of God for the likes of us. But the Bible is full of lesser demonstrations that point us to the love of God and bear the love of God to us. And they too, though surely lesser than the cross, are lavish demonstrations. And the one that I want us to think about today, and the one I want us to think about how we love God back in exchange for it, is creation. Creation is one of those great lavish acts of the love of God for us. Um, it serves as a sign of God's unfailing love for us. It happened to me this morning on my drive-in. When I come in on Sundays, I come in early enough that it's still dark out. And so I'm driving down Capitol Boulevard from up in the Youngsville area where I live. And I look out my driver's side window 
and there low in the sky, in the eastern sky, is Venus. It's, it's like a street light out there early in the morning, just a, being, a beacon of light out there. And so I look out my window and I see that and I'm reminded of, of this. I'm thinking of Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. The Psalms are replete with this. Here's one from Psalm 36. Um, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. So if you want to know, if you want to get a sense for how great the love of God is for you, on a clear night, Take a drive out into the country. Head out into Franklin County where there are no streetlights. And pull off to the side of the road and put the top down on your convertible. Don't you wish you had a convertible right now? Wouldn't that be great? Put the top down, lean the seat back, and look up at the myriad of stars. And that's a measure of the extent of the love of God for you. Now, um, since we don't all have convertibles... Um, Tim Keller gives this amazing illustration. Let me borrow one at the risk of screwing up the worship team badly. This piece of paper. And he says, think with me about this piece of paper and let's let the thickness of this piece of paper represent the distance from the earth to the sun. Okay? So this paper is 92 million miles thick. And so if we took this piece of paper and we laid it down on the floor and we stacked up that distance, pieces of paper to represent how close the nearest star is to us, we would have a stack of paper 70 feet tall. 70 feet tall. Um, your steadfast love, O oh God, extends to the heavens, twice the height of the, the ceiling in this room, easily. If we wanted to say, stack up paper to represent the galaxy, each stack of paper is 92 million miles thick, it would be... Um, 310 miles high. Your steadfast love, O oh Lord, extends to the heavens. That's how great the magnitude of the love of God is for you and for me. Creation is a picture for us painted with stars in the night sky of what Paul struggled to say in his prayer in Ephesians 3. It says um, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay. The stars are a visual example of the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God for us. Every night, it's there for us. Alistair McGrath says, nature's like a mirror itself, beautiful, while um, it is reflecting an even greater beauty of God. To study the wonder of nature is to glimpse tantalizing facets of the face of God and long to see more. 
in particular, the expanse of creation shows us the love of God. It's a sign of the greatness of his love for us. So when an astronomer gets out that telescope and looks at faraway stars, he ought to drop to his knees and love back the creator who has loved him so. Because see, really, that's all that worship is. Worship is just love aimed up. Okay? It's loving God back. All of creation, particularly the stars, are reminders of that. And it should give us pause and slow us down and prompt us to love God back. Creation is a sign of the love of God. It's a symbol. But it's more than that. It's actually a loving gift given to us for our good and for our enjoyment. Um, Psalm 136 is one of those psalms that makes this um, evident repeatedly it says give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever you might be picking up a pattern here to him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever to him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever to him who spread out the earth Above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist thinks about creation and he declares the love of God. Okay. This is common over and over in the scriptures. Psalm 119 um, says, the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Every day, when you take that baby carriage and you go down to Joyner Park and you push those youngins around there in the sunlight, you are walking in the midst of the love of God for you. Okay. Every night when you sit out there on the back deck and you look up and you see the moon and the stars, you are right in the middle of one of God's loving gifts to you. Genesis 1 uses the language of gift when it talks about the world God made for us. It says in verses 29 and 30, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. The world is a gift of God, his loving provision for us all. Plants for animals and animals for us, he says. But Genesis 2 gives kind of a fascinating twist to this. Down in verses 8 and 9, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Trees that are good to eat, his loving provision of food, but also trees that are just fun to look at. They are just beautiful. Um, you know, if you, if you leave here this morning on your way out the parking lot, if you go the long way around past the new building out in the parking lot over by building number two, 
Um, and if you're careful not to run any, over anybody on your way out, you'll look up and you'll see a maple tree that's just lighting up with the fall colors. Just It turns crimson red every year. Now you say, why does that happen? Well, I, I guess scientifically, it probably has something to do with photosynthesis, right? Isn't that right? Some of you science people, am I right? Theologically, it's just because God loves you. He gave us the trees that were beautiful for sight, just for sight, just as a gift so that you would enjoy it. He gave us 390 mountain ranges, 100,000 species of trees, 800,000 miles of beaches in the world, and some people in Hawaii with nothing better to do tell us that's 7 quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains of sand. So you could enjoy it because he loves you. So how do you love that God back? How do you love the Creator back? Um, in our kitchen, there's a cabinet up to the right of the sink that has mugs, lots of mugs. They don't match. Okay? They don't go together. But behind most of the odd-shaped, curious mugs in there, there's a story. And there's one mug in there that should have been thrown away long ago. It came from the dollar store, and it's, it says something like, um, even though we don't have it all together, we have it all, or something. You're thinking, that doesn't even make any sense. That's like, must have been made in China. It doesn't even make any sense in English. That mug lived in our cabinet for a decade for one simple reason. One of my sons gave it to his mother. That's the only reason that mug lived in our cabinet, was used in public in our home. Okay. Because it was because of who gave it, it was cherished. Until mercifully, that same son brought back a better mug from a trip to Barbados this year. Thank the Lord for that. Ed, Ed Brown puts it this way. He says, my biggest reason for caring for God's creation has nothing to do with the extent or the severity of the crisis, the number of people affected, or even the ultimate future of the human race. It has to do with one simple fact. I know the God who made it all, and I love him. If I can place a high price on things that have little or no intrinsic value simply because they were made by one of my children... How much more I ought to value and care for this amazing world God made, this world that is precious because he made it and that represents an excellence and beauty far beyond anything that any of us could begin to comprehend, let alone make on our own. How do you love God back? You treasure the gift that he has given to you. When was the last time you were so struck by a sunset or a, or a meadow full of flowers or just an incredible oak tree that you pulled off at the side of the road, stopped your commute and just took a few minutes and went, wow. See, most of us 
are too busy for this gift. We pass it by every day. We neglect it. We lose our appreciation for it. Busyness kills wonder. It kills worship. Eugene Peterson says, Busyness is the enemy of spirituality. It is essentially laziness. It is doing the easy thing instead of the hard thing. It is filling our time with our own actions instead of paying attention to God's actions. For some reason, I decided this fall that kayaking was cool. Okay. I just, I thought, I, I, I don't know if I saw it somewhere, but I decided I needed to try kayaking. So I find out, somebody says to me, I'm telling somebody that I think kayaking would really be cool. I'm not talking like white water where you go upside down, you have to roll and all that stuff. I'm talking about smooth lake, nobody around, you know, kayaking. Okay. Just me. So I find out there's a lady in the church who has a kayak. And I say, hey, can I borrow your kayak? She says, sure, love for you to borrow my kayak. So I take her kayak and I go out to Beaver Dam Lake. If you've ever been to Beaver Dam, it's an absolutely beautiful little dam outside of town. And I drop the kayak in at the far north crossing. And uh, I start stroking. And I go as far up into the headwaters as I can go. And I see these blue herons that are this tall and great white egrets that are just about as tall and I flush a bald eagle from its roost out there and I get to the end of the headwaters and I hear, I hear a waterfall and beavers have built a dam from one side of this room to the other and the water is just pouring over it in about a 360 kind of thing and I'm just sitting out there in the kayak and I'm thinking the Lord loves righteousness and justice the earth is full of his unfailing love. It's full of it. I'm drinking it in as I sit here. And so I wrote in my journal, I said, it's on display at every turn, this unfailing love. It's in the sunrise breaking through the backwoods. It's, it's in a nuthatch exploring the towering white oak near the deck in a red-shouldered hawk crying out overhead. It's in the doe that's grazing on the corn back near the fire pit then I said, grant me, O loving creator, eyes to see and a pace of life to be amazed at this daily full display of your love. Does your pace of life allow you to be amazed at this gift that the creator has given you for you to enjoy? Are you missing this great invitation to soak in the love of God for you and then to love the creator back in wonder and worship? So, you know, if you don't get anything else out of this sermon, you should take some time this week, drive out in the country, put the top down, and worship. Okay? Just soak it in. That is not licensed to buy a convertible if you do not own one. Just roll the windows down, stick your head out, you know, like that dog that you see. But this week, you should sit out and recognize that the beauty of the tree that you see is given to you as, from a loving creator just for your joy so that you would love him back. Genesis 2 fleshes out the shape of the love that we're to give back to our creator a little bit more with, with one little phrase. It's in Verses 8 and 9 and 15 of chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. The Lord 
we've already read this, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that it's pleasant um, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord took the man, in verse 15, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work it and to keep it. Some have rendered that expression to serve it and to care for it. And it has the idea of stewardship, of of taking care of um, a gardener caring for the plants in the garden kind of thing. You get the sense that God has entrusted to us this creation to care for. But we are stewards only, not owners ultimately. There's a little book. We give it to every new member at Northwake. Um, It's called The Treasure Principle. It's by Randy Alcorn, and it's about money. Um, And it says, one of his great statements in there is, God owns everything. I'm his money manager. And we agree with that. But it's bigger than that. Because God owns everything. I'm his creation manager. That's what Genesis is telling us. It's not true of just money, but all of creation. It all belongs to God. And the Psalms tell us this um, in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. In Deuteronomy, we saw this in chapter 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. It all belongs to him. So if you own a house and you've got that little quarter acre lot or maybe you live out in the country and you've got an acre, who's that acre belong to? It belongs to God. You are the caretaker of that little plot of land to the glory of God. Um, Abraham Kuyper put it, he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry Mine. Okay. We're stewards of God's good earth. But this little expression that we're thinking about, to work and to keep, is richer even than that. Um, even than tending a garden as an act of care for a, a good gift entrusted to us. There's a, a guy named Alan Ross who wrote a commentary on the book of Genesis. It's marvelous. And he says that those two words that are translated to work and to keep are significantly chosen. These words are used throughout the Pentateuch as words that represent spiritual service to God. To work is used for keeping the commandments and taking heed to obey God's word. To keep describes the worship and service of the Lord, the highest privilege a person can have. So this gardening activity, Ross says, is a spiritual service to the Lord. We were put in the garden, he's saying, to worship and to obey. Um, Jean Baudin says, we have come into this theater of the world for no other reason than to understand the admirable power, goodness, and wisdom of the most excellent creator of all things to the extent that this is possible. 
by contemplating the appearance of the universe and all his actions and individual works and thus to be swept away more ardently in praise of him. We are put in the garden to worship and to obey. And worship, worship is just our love aimed up to God. It's how we love the creator back. We care for his creation. Now, in the midst of all this, there's a very important thing that we don't want to miss. Um, We are not the end user of creation. We are not the end user of that little plot of land we call ours. It is all for his glory. We are stewards, not owners. We do what we do in caring for our world as an act of obedient worship back to the maker, back to the owner of it all, to God himself. And Colossians chapter 1 makes this point beautifully for us. It says, of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul says, all things are created by Christ. All things are created for Christ. All things are held together by Christ. And Christ will reconcile all things to himself. Al Walters says that God does not make junk. And we dishonor the creator if we take a negative view of the work of his hands when he himself takes such a positive view of it. He says, in fact, he takes such a positive view that he did not take, um, um, such a positive view did he take of what he had created that he refused to scrap it when mankind spoiled it, but determined instead at the cost of his son's life to make it new and good again. God does not make junk and he does not junk what he has made. It's all for him. Christ, in dying on the cross, redeemed us, but he is also in the act of redeeming this whole world to restore it to the state that it was first made, sin-free. It's not for us. It's for him. We're not the end user of this world in which we live. It's not about worshiping nature. We're not doing that. It's about a worshipful obedience to the creator of nature. It's about loving the creator back for the wondrous gift he has given in the world in which we live. So what what does all of this look like when we say yes to it? When we say that the way we should love the creator back is by caring for the creation. What would that look like? Francis Schaeffer says, if I'm going to be in a right relationship with God, I should treat the things he made in the same way he treats them. And the Psalms evidence that God delights in his creation. And so we should treasure it. 
We should delight in it. We've been talking about that. It's okay to turn the TV off and sit out on the back porch and watch the trees grow. Okay? Watch the leaves change and marvel at it. Okay? We should treasure it and we should care for it because God so cares for it. It's interesting, Psalm 104 is another one of those great psalms of creation and it describes God's care for it. It says, you, God, make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They, they sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, unless you're in seminary. All make his face shine and bread to strengthen. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. We should care for it. We should care for it. And think about that with me locally. It's interesting, we had a symposium here earlier this year. The church hosted it in conjunction with uh, one of the groups at the seminary. And it was on the Falls Lake, it was called the Falls Lake Symposium. And all kinds of scientists and theologians came in here and used, taught us all kinds of really big words and helped us think about what does it mean for scientists and theologians together to care for this world that God has given to us. And it's interesting, just practically, one of the practical things that they, they taught to us is that uh, Falls Lake is having some significant water quality issues such that in 2009, they closed that lake um, four times to swimmers. You may be aware of that. That lake was so bad, bacteria-wise, that you were not allowed to swim in it. Okay. Um, actually, I think it was Beaver Dam, precisely, was the one that was closed as part of that. One of the reasons for that they're saying um, that's contributing to that is lawn fertilizer runs off into the lake. We over-fertilize our lawn. It's not absorbed into the ground, and so it gets washed off into the storm sewer, which carries it into Falls Lake. And that's one of the major reasons they have to close that lake from time to time. It's, it's, that's one of the contributing factors. It's just we over-fertilize our lawn. So we would, as people who care about the creation, we might choose to cut back on the fertilizer. Let the neighbor win the yard of the month contest, okay? Because that's not what matters most. And guys, this is a win-win, okay? Because you don't fertilize it, you don't have to mow it. It's a beautiful thing, okay? There's no downside to backing off the fertilizer a little bit. Um, but that's just one practical example that we would say, if loving the creator back really means that we should care for creation well, then that's just a practical thing as people who are blessed to live by a lake, amazing lake like Beaver Dam and Falls Lake. You know, things, things like, if, we, if we're thinking like stewards, recycling makes sense as a steward to maximize the use out of that which has been entrusted to us. Okay. If we're thinking like a, worship for, a worshiper, conserving makes sense so that we are not constantly giving ourselves over to the latest, greatest, biggest, and best and throwing out that which we should be satisfied and content with. 
those kinds of things are just good expressions of a love for the creator. Um, now, there is a, a bigger picture um, because this is, a, this is a global issue. Sorry about that. It's a little premature. Um, the elephant in the room when you talk about a topic like this these days is the topic of global warming. Um, Global warming is blamed for everything from Hurricane Katrina to asthma deaths to drought in Africa and to the demise of polar bears in the Arctic. Um, it is a media um, firestorm right now. There's a lot of information and misinformation being propagated about that. Um, but the science, um, before I was a, uh, became a pastor, I was an engineer and I have a science background. And let me just say that the science behind the question of global warming is extraordinarily complex. Okay. When you're talking about predicting the, you know, the consequences of the whole earth decades, maybe centuries into the future, that's really stretching the greatest of our scientists. Okay. And as a result of that, this is not a simple issue. And so you should make sure that you're getting your science from scientists, not from talk radio, okay? and not from pastors. Okay? I can't teach. This science is way beyond me. Okay? I can tell you everything that the Bible says about global warming in one little moment of silence. Okay? It's not in the Bible. Okay? So, you know, become an informed steward Read good advice, but get it from good, reliable, informed, thoughtful sources. This is tough stuff. Um, there are a series of four great questions on this issue that must be answered. The Acton Institute has pointed these out for it. First, is the planet warming? That's question one. Second, second question, if the planet is warming, is human activity causing it? That's the second question. The third question is, if the planet is warming and we're causing it, is that really bad overall? Fourthly, if the planet is warming and we're causing it and it's bad, would the policies that are presently advocated really help or hurt the situation? So those are four critical questions you have to answer to be able to deal with this issue. And what I want to say this morning is, what if you decide that the answer to those four questions is yes? It really is warming. Most climatologists will tell you that it is. Not all, but most. What if it really is caused by um, human? We have a significant factor, human participation in it. And what if it really is bad? And what if, what if the solutions about carbon footprints and that stuff really are good solutions? Then we would say, we're in because we love the creator. And so we care for the creation. I'm not telling you the answers are yes. See, different ones of us will be convinced of those answers at different points by different evidence. So we need to give grace to one another and we need to read well and study and be informed and prayerfully think about these things. But when the answer is yes, if it's yes, if this is a wise way to care for creation, then we're in because we love the creator. and We want to care, love him back by caring for the creation. Now, a fantastic resource to help you begin to think, and what this book has done for me, 
um, increasingly so this week, is to lay a foundation biblically and theologically that I can evaluate all the science through. And we are blessed at North Wake. We have an elder who's written a book on this very topic. Mark Lederbach has just come out with a book called True North, Christ, the Gospel, and Creation Care. It's an excellent book. It, it's a Christ-centered way to think about this. It is, it's about loving the Creator back. About every good quote that I read you today came from Mark's book, as well as most of the theology. It's an outstanding work. He has copies available in the lobby for his cost, which means tomorrow when you go to buy it on Amazon, it'll cost you twice as much. Okay? So if this is something you're interested in, this is not a simple book. It's a, it's a rich book, so you'll learn new big words by reading it. Okay? You'll know what deontological is when you're done and things like that. But it's readable. It's accessible to everyone who's willing to think carefully and prayerfully through it. I would commend it as a great way um, to begin your reading and study on this. And that, what I say, is, is one of the first things we should do with this. We should read and study about what it means for us to love the Creator back. We should repent of being the end user and the endless pursuit of more for me. Okay? That does not honor the Creator and acknowledge Him as owner of it all. And we can take practical local steps. There are practical things we can do on our little tract of land in our community next to the lake that matter. We can do those things. But perhaps most significantly for us, we should take time to worship. Worship, to love the Creator back with a thankful heart and obedient worship as we work and keep His garden until He restores all things to Himself. And I'd like to invite us to do that right now. The team's going to lead us in a time of worship of the Creator. So if you'll stand, let's worship Christ, the Creator and owner of it all.